Well, hello and welcome to the Story Hive podcast. For our regular listeners and you that might be just joining us, this is actually episode 25. Yep, we can't quite believe it either. However, what is the Story Hive? It's a place for amazing stories. And what we'd like you to do today is join us on one of our story journeys. It's taken from one of the collections on the Story Hive, which you can access through 3wsthestoryhive.co.uk. And the collection is actually called True Stories, because as I said before, what you're about to hear was absolutely, is absolutely true. So let's kick off with the first story, and it's called The Proposal. I'd actually met Kathleen a couple of years earlier. We'd been introduced by a mutual friend, Teresa, at a party, and we'd hit it off immediately. But it wasn't about us getting together. We were both writers, so that's what we had in common. Kathleen was a serious science writer for academic publications and stuff, a very successful one as well. And now we began a loose kind of acquaintance, not super close, but friendly, and regular enough that we'd meet maybe once or twice a month, sometimes even two months, but always usually at parties or events that usually Therese, our mutual connection, had invited us both to. And we were always happy to see each other and have a good old chat. And I liked Kathleen. She was super smart and funny, a very dry sense of humour too. Plus she was attractive, tall with a shock of bright red hair, Scottish heritage, easy to see. But I was in a great relationship and she actually wasn't my type in that kind of way. Now, I only mention that, how shallow am I, but because I've always actually liked having female friends, ones I can just be comfortable with without any hint of relationships or desire being on the table. And I have to tell you, I'm fortunate to have a few who I absolutely adore, and they just add so much to my life. They're just my great friends. Now, one thing I found about Kathleen from Therese was she'd been single for around five years, which I couldn't understand. She was outgoing, brilliant, good job, nice looking. But that's the world sometimes. Love, just difficult to find for some folk. And Theresa said they talked about it, and Kathleen had definitely wanted a guy. She just hadn't met the right one. I guess that happens to us all. But then, Michael appeared. Now, I first found out about his existence one day at lunch with Therese, who said how happy she was. This Michael guy was lovely, good-looking too. Apparently, he owned some cleaning company, and he was very smart. He'd met Kathleen at some conference, and they'd hit it off immediately. And, of course, Therese smiled and said Kathleen was really happy it being a kind of whirlwind romance, which I thought was really nice. And so the months passed. I was super busy, like normal. And I was backwards and forwards to Germany, a lot for gigs. And I didn't get to see Therese or Kathleen for a good while. However, on my return, I get a message from Therese saying Kathleen was now engaged to Michael, then planning a wedding to take place in the next months. And I thought, how lovely. And she said the following week, there was a celebratory dinner at a restaurant in Covent Garden and Kathleen had asked, would I like to come? And so, with my girlfriend, off we went that next Friday evening. Now, if I'm honest, I thought it seemed a bit quick to get married, but who knows how love takes us. And plus, Kathleen was lovely and I was really happy for her. Now, when we arrived, the restaurant was packed and busy. And off to one side was a table for about 25, 30 people, already pretty much half full. People milling around, saying hello. And we saw Therese and Kathleen, so over we went. And my girlfriend sat down next to Therese, who she knew very well. 
But their side of the table was full now, so I had to go around the other one. But as I got there, a couple suddenly sat down right opposite them, and it forced me to move down a few seats, but it was all fine. The atmosphere was lovely, convivial. And now I found myself sitting next to a guy in a smart jacket, writing in a small notebook. And on the other side of me, the other couple were deeply now engaged in the conversation. Now the guy in the smart jacket looked up and stopped writing. He was a handsome-looking bloke, nicely dressed too. And he smiled at me and we just began chatting away the way you do. Typical London social evening. And it was obviously made nicer by the reason for us gathering there. So I pointed to my girlfriend and said, we knew Therese and of course Kathleen. And he nodded politely at that. And then as you do, we started to make the usual small talk. And after about 10 minutes, he suddenly leant forward and said, can I trust you? It seemed a bit of a weird thing to say. And so slightly bemused, I said, of course he could. And then it began. He started telling me, as a child, his parents had been spies. Him later joining them on missions, no one suspecting a child, being dropped by aeroplane with parachutes. Then on he went. Missions to find nuclear secrets, take out criminal kingpins. He was straight out of a James Bond film. And every now and again, he would make strong eye contact, nodding sagely at me as he did so. And I, I was completely engrossed, but I also realised from his rapid eye movement, he was either stoned or mentally ill, or both. But he warmed to his subject, going on for about an hour, and during which we'd ordered food and we'd eaten it. And I was kind of fascinated and appalled, but I couldn't get away. The table was packed as more people had arrived, and I was sort of trapped, and he was really intense. He didn't really let me move. I could hardly get a word in edgeways, which, if you ask anyone, is very unusual. And, of course, on the other sides of us, couples were now wrapped in each other's conversations. But not us. Oh, no. We were lost in some daring raid he'd been involved in that had taken place on a submarine in the Atlantic in a snowstorm. It was just nuts. Now, at this point, you do need to know something. And that was at one point I studied psychology. Yep, I know, weird. And in fact, I'd written a book called Understanding Humans, which is all about human behaviour and actions. And essentially, it's a kind of a guide to figuring people out. I even went as far as teaching courses based on it when I owned a training company. Yep, another story for another time. So I was pretty clear at this point. This wasn't drugs. The guy was crazy. I mean, sorry to be so unscientific, but he was madder than a bag of cats. And I could really see he believed this stuff. And it was incredibly detailed. But his whole manner was off. His body language was all wrong. The humour was forced. It was a kind of front. His eyes dead most of the time. His smile was completely fake. It was pretty unsettling and uncomfortable, I can tell you. Until, thankfully, the dinner ended and now people started getting up and having drinks. So I stood up and shook his hand and said, oh, I had to get back to my girlfriend. And he nodded vehemently, saying, yes, that was very important. Women needed guarding. A very strange response indeed. And now he disappeared to the bathroom. So very gratefully, I went back to my girlfriend, who was with Therese, who then said the words that froze my heart. Oh, great, she said. I see you've met Michael. Isn't he wonderful? You two look like you were really getting along brilliantly. Me instantly realising that Spy Boy was in fact Michael, Kathleen's fiancé, soon to be husband. Kathleen, this wonderful girl, this beautiful person, marrying this guy, this lunatic. Oh my God, 
I, I, I didn't know what to say or, or do. This was terrible. And of course, when I looked at Kathleen, she just looked brilliantly happy, carrying some presents people had bought. Well, finally, the evening ended. And on the way home, I told my girlfriend what had happened. And she was obviously concerned, knowing me pretty well. And of course, realising I wouldn't make stuff like that up, not even as a joke. This was too serious. And plus, she knew I had a fair bit of training and some specialist knowledge. <sighs> so now, I, I, I wrestle with what to do. And till eventually, I just called Therese later the next day and I just told her straight, what had happened. I explained all the signs, the mad stories, the conspiratorial nature of it all. And she was completely dumbfounded. And she said she didn't understand it. And she said that Michael Wall, he was normally owned a cleaning company with contracts at major airports. And then she added, Kathleen was absolutely head over heels in love with him. And of course, I was at a loss. <laughs> what could I say? I knew I sounded crazy, but I swear on all that I know the guy was mentally ill. He wasn't right in the head. And worse, he was about to marry this amazing girl I really liked. Now, thankfully, Therese knew me very well and she trusted me. She was a corporate lawyer, by the way. And now she said she'd have to think about what could be done. I mean, how do you go to your best friend, your deliriously happy best friend, and say the man you're in love with is crazy? Because Phil, the guitarist, said he was. I mean, remember, I knew this stuff, but I wasn't a psychologist. I wasn't, you know, a psychiatrist or trained. And I felt bad for Therese, but I knew I had to tell her what had occurred over those hours. It, I just had to. And of course, that really troubled me a lot. But I just didn't know what else to do. So I left it with her. Now, I got busy. I had to go back to Germany, various festival gigs in my diary, and I went off then for about another three weeks. And then, on my return, I get a call. It's from Therese. And she said everything was sorted. But it was how it was sorted was the incredible bit. She said she didn't want to talk about it on the phone, so could we meet for lunch? And so we did. And then it all came out. Once we'd sat down and ordered... She pushed a woman's magazine across the table, a well-known one, and she'd marked a place with a bookmark, and she said, read it. And so I did. Oh, my goodness. It was unbelievable. It seemed an investigative journalist had got wind of some guy, a serial bigamist, and written an expose, but then it got very surreal. For there in the magazine was Michael, the super spy I'd met, a picture of him, surrounded by a series of blacked-out pictures of women, 12 in total. The article saying he had multiple personality disorder, and he was in fact linked to all the girls in the blacked-out pictures, all of them, the 12 of them, some of which he married. He'd been taken into protective custody, the article read, now being held in a secure mental health facility pending a trial. It turned out that two of his victims had agreed to be interviewed and they'd explained how he'd met them and been taken in by him. To one woman, he claimed to be an airline pilot for British Airways and to the other, he ran a building firm in Newcastle, complete, I might add, with a Geordie accent. And the women he knew were scattered all over the country. His various identities all being people who had to regularly travel and go away for days and weeks at a time, that explaining his constant absences. 
He'd run up enormous credit card debts, achieving all these aliases, different clothes, renting various addresses. And he'd done this all in a wild and damaging one and a half year spree. Thankfully, one of his victims earlier had somehow found out about one of the other girls and they'd met up. And then she contacted a journalist friend and it was her skills that finally uncovered the whole mad, crazy thing. The magazine finally tracking down all the women, most too embarrassed to come forwards, understandably, including Kathleen. Remember, these were intelligent people, good people. But the heart can let us down, I suppose. What is it they say? Love blinds us? And Therese told me Kathleen was of course devastated and heartbroken and pretty embarrassed to find it all out. But obviously, in a way, she was relieved. But she loved the guy, completely. They were seriously planning a future together. And as I said, it turned out Super Spy was actually married to six of the other women. So in a way, she had a very lucky escape. God knows what he was capable of. So now, try to imagine me in a restaurant, talking to a guy who's clearly crazy, and then finding out he's marrying one of the nicest people I'd ever met, and then reading this magazine article. Whew, that was a close shave. Truth so often stranger than fiction, as I constantly say. Now maybe because of this, we all slowly drifted apart. I don't know. Therese and Kathleen and me. Kathleen, I knew, feeling so embarrassed. Anyway, I was much more in Germany over the next years, gigging and running around. But I later heard they both moved out of London. And, as they say, that's nearly the end of my story. Apart from the fact that I did hear from a different friend many years later that Kathleen eventually met a lovely guy. And I think they're still married and very happy. For her, love arrived, as it should. Honest and truthful. And as for Spy Guy, I've got no idea. Well, we hope you enjoyed that. And I think that does give the lie to that actually expression that the truth is sometimes stranger than fiction. And sometimes fiction is stranger than the truth. But that story is a true story. And if you like that one, you're going to love the next one. Because it's a story of youth um, and that kind of innocence and nothing phases you when you're young. And here it is, the maitre d'. Now, I'm actually in this particular story quite a bit. However, my personal favourite part is right at the end and actually has nothing to do with me at all. That's not a spoiler. But I have to set it all up a bit, so just bear with me. Because it all happened a very, very long time ago. I'd met Mr Hassan when I was just 17 and I was still at school. A friend of mine had seen an advert looking for a guitarist in a restaurant window. So I went along to what turned out to be his restaurant and I played for him and his wife and they both loved it and I got the job. And what then started was a pretty outrageous and highly brief chapter in my young early life. Now, Mr. Hassan was originally from Syria, and as a young man, he'd run away from a small rural village, and he finally made it to the coast, where amazingly, he'd stowed away on a cruise ship, and he'd later been discovered, and they forced him to work his passage. But somehow then, he just stayed at sea for years, ducking and diving, moving from ship to ship, and he learned every skill he could, and he worked his way up the ladder. He finally ended up as a head chef. Now, 
Eventually, him and a different ship had pitched up in England. And remember, he'd been a washer-up, a porter, a waiter, a head waiter, a maitre domo, and a head chef. And in fact, he actually now knew everything there was to do with restaurants, pretty much. And so he met a girl in England, he married her, and now here they were, in my hometown, opening up a brand new Lebanese restaurant. Now, a new Lebanese restaurant might sound pretty normal, but back then in the early 80s in my town and the Gentile suburbs, Arabic cuisine was considered a very wild and exotic idea. But happily, it really took off, and the locals flocked in and they told their friends, and the place was a hit. The final seal of approval being the regular visits from lots of Arab people coming all the way up from London. So good was the cooking, and the music from me, of course. Now, many of the new Arab customers were also very well-heeled, arriving in shiny Rolls-Royces with uniform drivers, and soon they became regulars too. Best of all, big spending regulars, and best for me, big tipping regulars. Now, I have to tell you, Mr Hassan was a complete character, with his heavily accented and sometimes not so brilliant English, and I later found out he was also a man with a sharp eye on the chance and not above slightly dodgy tricks. Nothing sinister, I have to point out, just a bit of a hustler, unsurprisingly considering where he'd come from. However, to me, he was always really kind and lovely and straight and generous. And we immediately hit it off and we, we just did. In a way, he kind of acted like my uncle, a favourite and naughty but harmless one. Now, one little memory was that he quickly noticed that I didn't drink alcohol. And when customers asked to buy me a drink, as I play a song, I always said, I'd have an orange juice, please. And so one busy evening, he told me, we didn't make much money on orange juice, the real money being in the drinks at the bar. So then he told me I should always ask them for a vodka and orange, which they were perfectly happy to order and pay for. And then they'd watch as a glass filled with two inches of orange juice would be brought to me by a waiter. I'd raise my glass, and I'd drain it in one. And of course, it didn't have any vodka in it, although they'd been charged for it. Mr. Hassan keeping a careful note, and he'd split the vodka money with me every night I played. And amusingly, I always loved this bit. People thought I was incredible, as somehow they'd see me knock back 10 vodka and orange juices most nights and just carry on playing and singing as normal. So there I was now, the official, apparently very young, madly heavy drinking musician, Fridays and Saturdays, plus Sunday lunchtimes. Now, a month passed and Mr Hassan asked me to help him with other things in the business. He actually paid me to teach him and the staff better English. The waiters were all these young Egyptian guys from a nearby technical college. And he thought my rather crisp English accent was just wonderful. Of course, it's turned into a London accent then. But if you'd have met me in those days, I had a voice like that. I seemed to sound like Prince Charles or King Charles, I should call him. So anyway, then amazingly, in addition, he asked me to deal with the restaurants, the meat and the milk and the vegetable supplies. Because he said he thought they'd be straight with me being a native. But he said he thought they were ripping him off, as he put it, him being a stupid, ignorant foreigner. His exact own words to me. And plus, you've got to remember back then, sadly, people were often quite racist. I saw it, racist to him, and he was lovely. Now, the important point, just to remind you, I'm still a kid, still at school doing my A-levels. But what the hell? Now, anyway, one night... One of the very wealthy, regular Arab gentlemen, as we used to call them, arrived at the restaurant. And after eating, he asked Mr Hassan if he'd like to replicate this restaurant inside a South Kensington hotel he'd just bought. And he offered him a three-month contract. And Mr Hassan agreed. 
and he told me afterwards he thought they could make a fair bit of money out of it. Now, a very bit of important historical background is needed, so just bear with me. You see, in around the late 1970s and the early 80s, various Arab countries were super rich with oil revenues. I know they are now, but back then it was a new thing. And it suddenly seemed all the various families with kings and princes from Saudi Arabia, Qatar, Bahrain, all the Gulf states started flooding into London. And they were all seemingly on a spending spree because it was an incredible time. These people were losing millions in the casinos. They were buying fancy cars, giant houses, expensive jewellery and everything that you could imagine. But here's a really important point. Pretty much all of them seemed to have little or no concept of the value of the money they had because they just had so much of it. And it was a really strange set of affairs now looking back, especially considering now in 2023, nothing much has changed apart from they're way more sophisticated and they know the value of everything. Now, Mr. Hassan asked me to come in my school holidays, which happily had just started. And so I helped him go down there and set up and run the restaurant. I mean, what an adventure that was. I was 17. So he hired four more young guys from the local technical college and they came down on the train with me every day. Plus, we had some staff rooms in the hotel if we had to need to stay over. And very quickly, we got the restaurant up and running and business picked up pretty quick. Mr. Hassan, as always, doing the brilliant cooking. And my job, it turned out, was not to play guitar, but I had to run the front of house. So there I stood in my new smart suit, the restaurant manager on duty, age 17. Now, I quickly discovered the hotel actually catered exclusively for Arab-only clients. All the hotel staff coming from all over the Middle East, mainly Egypt, Jordan, Lebanon, Syria, as far as I could tell. In fact, the only non-Arab person in the whole place was me. Now, a great way of illustrating my earlier point about all this money the guests were spending that didn't seem to even notice it or understand the value was one day when Mr. Hassan asked me to talk to the hotel manager, a really lovely man, Mr. Arkim, who was from Jordan. It turned out that most of the guests simply came to the restaurant, ordered what they wanted and ate, and they just left without paying. Now, you've got to remember, these guys were in full Arab dress. Most of them were princes of various kind. They were powerful, people you didn't really want to upset. So you had to be really careful here. I mean, they were of all different ages. They all looked amazing. Flying robes, headbands, gold daggers. Seriously, the whole works. And often they'd arrive with a gaggle of burqa-clad wives and countless children. And sometimes there were large groups of young men, all in their 20s, all princes too. And so sometimes 20 or 30 people would just turn up and ask for a table. No one ever booked and no one ever paid. So we worked out that somehow they thought by staying at the hotel, the food just came part of the deal and something had to be done. So we explained the problem to Mr. Arkeem, the hotel manager, and then he and Mr. Hassan hatched a plan, which looking back, I have no idea why I went along with it, but I was young and stupid and pretty much game for anything. And the restaurant wasn't taking any money. So as it transpired, they hired me a fancy black towel coat stripy grey trousers, white gloves, a wing collar shirt and a white bow tie and patent leather shoes. 
and they now started telling the guests I was some fancy new maitre d' they'd hired from the Dorchester at great expense. And now, now if that's not mad enough, here comes the craziest part. Mr Arkeem sent a note around saying guests had to pay their restaurant bills separately to me. And incredibly, I then learned that each family or group took a floor, not some rooms, a whole floor. This place was pretty big and it had been sort of laid out to cater for the Arab guest special requirements. I have to tell you, I have never experienced anything like it and I've never experienced it again. But I loved it. It was mad. I was 17, confident and tall. And in my fancy new clothes, I have to confess, I thought I looked rather impressive. So we'd noted down what each party had eaten and Mr Hassan knew which princes belonged to which family. So then I got sent to the various floors carrying an invoice written in Arabic. And each time I knocked, I was always greeted very nicely when they saw me, usually by a young servant of some kind. I was ushered into a kind of entrance hallway, and sometimes I see a huge bunch of people, ladies in burkas in one room, children in another, men in white robes in the main lounge, sitting around, generally on cushions, smoking and drinking coffee, chattering. It looked like a scene out of a Hollywood movie. Now also rather disconcertingly for me, no one seemed to speak any English, but the really crazy part was, and this completely freaked me out for the first time. Upon me presenting the invoice, I was immediately met by a young guy in full robes and headdress, who smilingly offered me a Harrods carrier bag, stuffed with cash. Seriously, a great big carrier bag with loose cash, some in bundles of all denominations and amounts, and the invoice was just waved away and pretty much left ignored. So the first time it happened, I, I just bowed, and then I leant forwards, and I reached out and I grabbed a fistful of notes from the bag and left. I didn't attempt to count it in case it looked rude, and no one said anything. So from then on, each time I was ushered into a hallway, waved my invoice, out would come a bag, I would reach in, and carefully and rather elegantly, I'd grab the biggest handful of the money I could see, I'd gravely bow, and then I'd walk away backwards, continue to face whichever person I'd just met. I mean, I didn't know what else to do, and I was terrified at offending anyone. I had no idea of customs or protocol. I was really just winging it. And happily, as it turned out, everyone seemed okay with the arrangement. And amazingly, I generally took around 900 to £1,000 more than I should have, every single time, sometimes even more. I was just grabbing what I could see, hoping it would be enough. And nobody seemed to care. And Mr Hassan typically doubled my already very generous wages. It was outrageous and I loved it. There was my outfit and the whole crazy theatre of it. And eventually we got Mr Arkin to add the bills to the hotel stuff and I got relieved of my money collection duties. So that wasn't too bad. But soon the school holidays were ending. And I was still managing my A-level homework, but also I would catch the train into town and I'd work on most of the evenings and the weekends that I could. And the restaurant was now doing really well, full most of the time. And Mr Hassan said to me he needed to make as much money as he could because then he found out the guests expected the kitchen to be open 24 hours a day. I mean, it was really hard work. And some nights we both fell asleep in the restaurant on chairs. Now then we got told that the visiting season was ending and it would be the final months and they'd roll along because it was something to do with religious holidays and cultural reasons. I wasn't sure, but I knew that we would eventually have to stop 
And Mr. Hassan was actually honestly relieved, because he was exhausted. My God, he worked like a dog. But now comes my absolute favourite part of this entire story. You see, on my first week there, I'd met a young guy called Hamid. I can't remember where he was from, Egypt, I think. But he was a kind of concierge come gopher for the hotel. And his job was to ensure guests got whatever they needed. He ordered taxis, flowers, food, deliveries. He got theatre tickets and all sorts of stuff. And he actually lived in a small room in the basement. He was 21 years old, not that much older than me, really. But he was really self-assured, always smartly dressed in a black suit. And best of all, he was a really lovely bloke, funny and really sharp. And the months passed and I spoke to him most days. Often he'd come and sit and have a chat to me in the restaurant, me now permanently in my tailcoat and wing collar. I wouldn't have looked out of place on top of a wedding cake. And often me and Hamid would have a bit of food together. The Dorchester guy, he called me. Now I learned he'd come across to study chemical engineering from the Middle East and his family were pretty poor and he told me he was here to study and work and save as much money as he could and send it back home. He had a mum and around six siblings relying on him and I could tell how much he cared about them from the way he spoke. There was no anger or disappointment. It was his job, he said, to be the man of the family, his father being very ill. But he was amazing. He seemed to work all the time. And it didn't faze him. A kind, funny person. And amazingly, I then found out he spoke about six other languages, most of the Arab dialects. And he always came across as super calm. You, nothing seemed to faze him. And some days he'd drop by the restaurant, as I said, and he'd tell me about the parties and the stuff the young princes were having, the wine, women and song in full swing, doing things they shouldn't really be doing gambling and drinking and roaring around Park Lane in their Ferraris and Lamborghinis. These were very rich young men, he told me, far from home in international London, and they were determined to have a very good time, and by that he meant a wild time. But everything he said was discreet and secret, hinting they were behaving very badly according to their culture and religion. But then he said he didn't judge them. He said he understood them, they were young men, like him and me, and so he got them whatever they needed that being his job, essentially. But the financial rewards, he said, were pretty generous, the tips he got accumulating nicely. And remember, his family back home were completely relying on him. I mean, what a burden for such young shoulders. I later learned he got the job just as the hotel was opening, and he hadn't looked back. He was a real hard worker, that's what Mr Akim said, and those two got on really well. But now we could all see... The writing was on the wall. The season was coming to an end. And soon the great exodus would start. Because whatever the season was, you could tell the atmosphere was changing. Some of the staff leaving. And the place started to feel very strange. And it was sad in a way. Because the hotel seemed to be emptying of life. No one else checking in. And remember, this hotel was exclusively for large groups of Arab guests. And now it seemed they were all going home. Then Mr. Sands told me the hotel owner was even going to sell it to some other company. And for us in the restaurant, it was nearly time to pack up. Because week on week, you could watch as the hotel emptied of guests, floor by floor. Huge family groups departed. Lobby now constantly crammed, almost daily. Cases and bags and children and people. Poor Hamid now running around like a crazy guy. 
and now he really did seem to be working all the hours God sent. And we worked on in the restaurant. Until then, unusually one day, Hamid just didn't show up for work. And it was sad, really, because I'd have liked to say goodbye to him. And he hadn't said anything to anybody. If I was honest, I thought he'd probably had enough and left. But I hope he'd be okay, because I knew his family were relying on his money, but I couldn't blame him for going. This guy had worked like four people. I mean, he couldn't have kept it up. And plus, I have to be very discreet here, he was treated always really badly. The Arab princes and their guests talked to him very rudely, terribly. But now he'd left, and no one seemed to know where he'd gone. And then some other guy came in, and we just carried on. But to be honest, the place was like a ghost town. The restaurant contract came to an end that week, a new company arrived to take over. And so back home, we all went. And to be honest, it felt good to be back in the little restaurant after the last crazy and surreal months. But as I said, my favourite part of the story gets told to me by Mr Hassan and the wonderful Mr Arkham around a month later, when he came up and visited us at the restaurant. You see, it turned out that Mr Arkham knew that our enterprising young Hamid had organised a lot more for the younger princes than just taxes and flowers. He'd actually been getting them girls and various recreational substances, and they'd relied on him completely. But one particularly important service they wanted was for him to get them the latest fancy sport cars, which he was buying for them for cash. Yeah, for cash, from various well-known dealers around London. But now, now came the kicker. You see, when each young prince left town, they'd just simply given Hamid the car keys and the papers being left in the glove box. And that resulted in him becoming the owner of around 30 high-performance supercars from Ferraris to Porsches to Lamborghinis to Bentleys, which he'd taken the stashing in a warehouse he'd rented especially for the purpose out in Perivale on a nondescript industrial estate. He was 21. He was far from home and his family relied on the money he could send them. And now it pretty much looked like they'd never have to worry about money again. But then Mr. Akim surprised us again. It turned out he'd making around £1,000 a week in tips. Now, the average salary for a job in those days was a few thousand pounds a year. And because of that, it was all down to the princes. They just seemed to have no concept of money. It was just paper to them. And remember, they had an unending supply of it. But then finally, and it is finally, my favourite bit, the watches. He'd been given around... 15 Rolex solid gold watches as tips. And these had apparently been keeping in the local bank for sale. And then Mr Arkin pulled up his sleeve. And there it was, a glinting, shiny gold Rolex. A parting gift, he said, from Hamid as a thank you for his job. And for me, the end of a great adventure. And the end of this story. Well, hopefully that took some of you back many years to your own youth. Uh, depends how old you are, I suppose. But anyway, it's time for me to wrap up. As I say, please join us on all of our social media at thestoryhive.co.uk. And do remember, you can drop us a line, write to us and get in contact if there's other things you think you'd like to hear here on the Story Hive podcast. So, as I like to leave everybody every week with our familiar phrase, and that is, happy listening. <laughs>